0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Jess Walter, essayist, journalist, nonfiction, short story, and novel writer. His latest works are the short story collection, We Live in Water, and the novel, Beautiful Ruins. His novel, The Zero, was a finalist for the National Book Award. He grew up in Spokane, Washington, where he still lives. His father worked at an aluminum plant, and neither of his parents went to college. So we began our interview talking about how he came to writing.
1: Some of it's personal. When I was five, I got a stick thrown in my left eye and was blinded in that eye and spent about a year in hospitals wearing eye patches, wore an eye patch until I was eight. For a lot of writers, if you look in the past, there's kind of a place where they're in the, the stream and all of a sudden they're thrust out of the stream and you become a sort of observer of the stream going by you. If that makes sense. And I, so I think there's part of that. Um, But my brother works for a newspaper. My sister's a librarian. So we were, um, in in spite of the fact that, you know, my dad was a high school dropout and my mom was a housewife who, you know, married at 18. Um, We didn't have, you know, there were no college graduates in our family. In spite of all that, we grew up in a pretty... in a world where we valued books and writing and, um, you know, and I think that was just my mom. I think she just said, you're going to read and you're going to write. And it wasn't... it was actually when she, she died when I was 29 of cancer and I was nursing her along. And I knew she'd gone and taken one year of community college after the kids had left the house, but I didn't really know too much about it. But when I w- looked, I was going through her papers with her, with her um, some of her stuff, and I found a, an English paper she'd written. And it was like coming across a tape of your mother singing with perfect pitch. You know, she wrote with perfect pitch. She was a kind of natural writer. And she'd written an essay about um, sneaking on to my father's aircraft carrier when he was in the Navy to sleep with him when he was under, uh, um, when he was, couldn't leave the ship, he'd lost liberty for getting in a fight. And so she put on a sailor's, uh, she borrowed the clothes of another sailor, tucked her hair up and got on the boat. And it it was such a great piece. And I remember thinking that, oh, there's some natural talent that she passed on that we had no idea about. One of the one of the reasons for writing Beautiful Ruins was, you know, to write a book that I thought my mom would have liked, you know, and I think she would have loved it. I think, you know, um, the original impulse of writing about a woman going to Italy around that time was based on my mom. So, um, and I started the book uh, right around the time she died. Um, so, yeah, it was very much sort of tied into um, my connection to her and the loss of her.
0: She was dying of cancer. Same yeah,
1: she. You know, the book begins with a woman who believes she's dying of stomach cancer, and that's what my mom died of. It's sort of the only trace of her that's left in the book, the... Um, uh, I ended up writing an, an essay, a couple of essays about my mom's death. Uh, it was probably the only time I've really had what we traditionally think of as writer's block. You know, there are a lot of days when I'm just too lazy or distracted, but it was the only time when I had this huge thing in front of me that I couldn't write around. Um, and the first attempts at beautiful ruins were me to try to were my trying to write it, as I often do allegorically or metaphorically. Um, When I'm feeling something, I'll often create a character and imbue them with some similar thing. And it's a way of sort of um, writing through and around emotions that I might feel. But with this, I kind of had to write straight into it. It was like a wind that you couldn't sail around. I had to just tack or I had to go straight into it. So Beautiful Ruins ended up being a better novel, too, because it became about something else.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Jess Walter, author of the novel Beautiful Ruins. The novel covers many locations, including Hollywood, Idaho, Italy, and Scotland, and a wide swath of time, World War II to present day. The story's impetus is a Hollywood actress working on the film Cleopatra in Rome with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. She is mysteriously sent away to a remote Italian coastal village where she meets Pasquale, a hotel proprietor that falls in love with her. As the novel builds, it expands to include many people in their inner and outer circle, including Richard Burton, as well as fishermen, authors, musicians, actors, and producers. Beautiful Ruins explores the themes of fame and responsibility, talent, and lost dreams. Pasquale does not end up pursuing the Hollywood actress and much of the novel is about their time together in 1962 as well as their subsequent lives. So sometimes I find that when writers start a book, there is something specific nagging at them that they want to get out. So with Beautiful Ruins, was it about death or was it something else that you felt like you wanted to... I th-
1: I think if, if I look back at my novels... Um they are everything that's nagging at me. So um, initially there was a kind of, you know, the, this book spans 50 years. There's a sort of quality of the fullness of life. But it's really, I think, a novel about storytelling in the end, which is what I did, was doing over those 15 years that I worked on the novel. I was I was exploring the way we use narrative to define our lives and the many ways we use narrative, from songwriters to playwrights to um, screenwriters to good old-fashioned novelists um, to just regular people. You know, when we tell our lives, we tell them uh, in narrative. And so th- I, I think that's the larger thing holding the novel together. But, you know, you talk about the things. Was uh, Did you say the things screaming at you or the uh, nagging, nagging at, at you? you. Uh, I was thinking screaming for some reason. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like, the um, you know, all the things that I – that I was thinking about during that time, fame and how it works for you and against you, and what it, what it can do to you. The the um, vagaries of our ambition, um, what we make of of the dream of who we think we'll be um, versus the reality. And love, you know, the, what it is to fall for someone. What whether or not um, an unrequited love might not be the purest form because it's it it still is humming with all that energy. None of the energy's been released. Uh, and, in a more pedestrian way, we haven't had a chance to disappoint each other. you know they haven't seen the way our hair looks in the morning or um, us at our more, most selfish you know and so all of those you know there there were a hundred things sort of uh, th- there's a question someone asked Marilyn Robinson one time, are any of these characters you?" and she said, "Oh my goodness, yes, all of them And I think that about the themes in the fiction I write. Um, I can connect with so many of the themes. They typically are the things I've been noodling around.
0: So when you go into a work before it's written and you're thinking about those themes, do you ever feel overwhelmed or how do you approach making sure that, one, that those themes don't back you into a corner so you can still tell a story? And also, how do you make it into a story, because you're not knocking someone over the head and says, this is about fame and what it does to you. You have to find characters and a way to say that in more subtext.
1: Yeah, it's funny. The, you started that question the way a lot of people start writing questions before or when you start. And when you start, you don't know anything. you know, And that's the hardest thing, I think, for... People to understand, and it's hard. Authors forget it sometimes too. We finish, and there's a sense of ine- of inevitability. This was always about this, and um, and I think I've I probably gained perspective on this book because I wrote it three times over fifteen years, um, and and had to keep going back and refining and and you know doing those very things, balancing those things that you talk about. I tend to not have too much trouble um, with the pull of narrative Um, and the themes are the things that come up and surprise me. I I will be surprised to find that, that, oh, the book has become about this. And I keep a writing journal that I never go anywhere without. And that's often where I'll record um, those ideas. It's an old saw that writing a book is discovering what its story is. And I've yet to find any way around that. I've yet to wake up one morning and see the path of a novel.
0: So... You're talking about this process where you it's like one of discovery when you're writing a novel. Do you feel like there's less questions when you're writing a short story? Like you're, it's more a concentrated thing that you have more focused on?
1: Um, for me, stories, t- I tend to have at least the situation in my mind before I start writing. Um, but in the same way, I'm always describe I'm always surprised by the place the story leads. Um, I wrote a story called Wheelbarrow Kings, which is... Um, uh, besides being filled with more profanities than maybe any story anyone's ever written. I, I, I lost track of a number. But the, it's about two meth dealers who or two uh, meth users who have come across a giant television, um, a big rear projection television, decide they're going to pawn it. And it's like the Odyssey. It's essentially um, their adventures as they're tr- pushing this TV around. And I my idea with that story and with all the stories is that People have a almost a uh, a panic and a fear about poverty and having grown up lower middle class and always lived in blue collar areas. I find it kind of amusing actually that you know the people are far more horrified by the behavior in some of the short stories I've written because the people are poorer than um, Beautiful Ruins where the people act, you know, in really reprehensible ways but, you know, are pretty well off. Uh, But in this story, these, these guys are pushing this TV around trying to find a place and to sell it, to pawn it, and their adventures are just, you know, sad and Difficult, And at the end of the story, um, I won't say what's happened, but they've had a tiny bit of luck, not much. And they're walking along thinking about the day they've had and they start recounting it for each other. And as I'm writing... I'm thinking the story's over they've you know the the business with the tv the original thing but all of a sudden these guys start telling each other the story and one guy's telling the other one and they start laughing and they're they're recounting the story you've just read and i'm thinking why am i recounting the story and they're laughing so hard and it felt like something my brother and i would do um where you read you know with close friends the way you recount something and and one of the characters says I don't know why we're laughing. it wasn't we didn't laugh once when this stuff was happening, but it suddenly seems so funny, and then he says the line that I wrote, um, maybe maybe uh, maybe remembering is better than living, and there was just a moment of like pure um, connection there where i I'd hit something universal through the, these really difficult lives where you can imagine, yes, for these guys, remembering would be better than living what we just did. But it's true of all of us in some way, you know, that maybe remembering is better than living. So for me, I often feel like a short story's done when the situation I've proposed has come and gone and I've come across some universal truth that, um, that makes makes the story broaden out and become larger than itself. Um, So often, especially with short stories, I'm surprised, maybe not as much by what happens, as by um, a sort of synthesis that, that I arrive at in the story.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Jess Walter, author of the novel Beautiful Ruins. So let's talk a little bit more about the beautiful ruins. You started off with this idea about your mother dying of cancer. So how did it grow to this bigger and bigger thing that needed to have connection?
1: Initially, there was just this woman, D. Moray, coming to this village um, that I invented, Porto Vigonia, Italy, which is near the Cinque Terre. Uh, and this man, Pasquale Turci, seeing her and falling in love with her and that's all I had for a few years was um, that. And I didn't know what it meant. Um, I had started working in Hollywood doing, you know, writing some scripts and doing some things and became interested in the idea of acting. And so I decided she was an actress. I'd already decided that it would be in the early 60s because that's when my mom could have gone. But also the Cinque Terre was less um, uh, Rick Steve hadn't yet, uh, Steve's hadn't yet, um, discovered it and so most americans didn't really know about it. it was less traveled it seemed like a better time to set it there but then i thought well what's an actress doing in italy in the 1960s and um Writing a novel for me is just following your research um, down these rabbit holes, and I, as I researched what was going on in Italy, you know, I was reading about the um, Italian film scene with Fellini, and that was interesting. There were actors and actresses coming over from America to do voice work to do dubbing. That was interesting, and then I came across Cleopatra, the um, you know the epic. disaster of a movie that was filmed with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor and that just seemed fascinating to me. In the meantime I was stuck with one chapter uh, and I had always wanted to call the hotel the hotel adequate view which seems such a funny thing, um, but I needed a way for that to exist, and no, the, no Italian man would ever call his view adequate. They, um, understatement isn't really something Italian men are bred with, uh, um, and so I needed an American. So because I was stuck with one chapter, I sent an American to my village, this guy Alvis Bender, um, who's stuck on one chapter of a novel, and then I wanted to see his one chapter of a novel, so I wrote that. Um, not knowing if it would go in the book, if it was just a one-off, and I really ended up liking it, and I liked the way all of a sudden another story gave a sort of depth to this, to this other thing I was writing, and I realized this is, a, this is about stories and about the way they come together and crash together. Um, and the, the structure started to sort of appear beneath the surface of what I was writing. And then it was really um, following those two characters, Pasquale and D, and seeing how far I could um, sort of veer away from them and still come back. Um, and every time I veered away, I became interested in the other tale that I was telling the other story. And I realized that when I boomeranged back to their story, um, that, that I had information from that journey outward that told me more about them and then it was really piecing it together there were a lot of stops and starts chapters that didn't fit characters that came and went but i but i think i kept track of you know what the story meant and and this idea of being able to see our lives as um in retrospect and to look back not at who we thought we were going to be or at some idealized version of who we are but as the title says the ruins of our lives the the uh, and the sort of beauty that comes from ruination, that comes from failure, and um, and you know trying but not succeeding, and having heartbreak, and that was you know lather, rinse, repeat for fifteen years, and then you have a novel.
0: For me, there's a line in there that sums up the book, and it's Pasquale's mom was telling him some advice for life, and she said the smaller the space between your desire and what is right, the happier you will be. And this, to me, was this, one of those events in life, when you were talking about earlier about an event in your life that changes you. Yeah. To, to me, this was something she said to him that really ended up dictating his life's path. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that idea.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you found that line up for me did it sort of close the to me the book opens with Pasquale thinking another line, which is that life is a blatant act of imagination, and then it ends with his mother saying that the closer your your desires are to what is right, the happier you will be um and it it again, I think that was one of those lines that fifteen years of wisdom and living give you um when you're looking at the lives of these characters and Pasquale has a choice in the book that is a choice that we see as a uh, that I think a reader might see as a as a classic romantic choice. And, um, the way it's often presented, we want this one, but not this one. And the fact that he wanted both, um, was a revelation to me and a revelation to me too, because we, we can fill our lives with so many things and we can be so ravenous for success, for love, for, for so many things that we can look right past the very things that exist in our lives that have been making us happy, um, or that have made us happy at various times. We can, you know, we can just look, it's almost as if we're farsighted and the things that are closest to us we can't see and I think in that moment all the things Pasquale's gone through um he he that's an epiphany that he has that um that I've shared and written in my journal before which is the um you know in our long quest for peace and happiness we we tend to look beyond our borders sometimes, and it was right there in front of him the whole time. It, it did, you know, it gave Pasquale, and we were talking earlier about how do, how do you then translate that into narrative? Well, that, uh, I think that's one of the themes of the book, and it, and it leads very directly to the next step of narrative, which, which choice he's going to make in his life.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Jess Walter, author of the novel Beautiful Ruins.
1: I remember being a journalism student and thinking that I, instead of being a fiction writer, I would probably end up being a nonfiction writer. And I remember reading Slouching Toward Bethlehem in the White Album and thinking that here was a sort of clarity of purpose. And I love the way, I love the way Joan Didion writes. And then I love what the sentences say. So this is just the beginning of the White Album, which I think is, it's almost a kind of statement of belief for writers. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. The princess is caged in the consulate. The man with the candy will lead the children into the sea. The naked woman on the ledge outside the window on the 16th floor is a, is a victim of axody, or the naked woman is an exhibitionist and wouldn't be interesting to know which. We tell ourselves that it makes some difference whether the naked woman is about to commit a mortal sin or is about to register a political protest or is about to be, the Aristophanic view, snatched back to the human condition by the fireman in priest's clothing, just visible in the window behind her, the one smiling at the telephoto lens. We look for the sermon in the suicide, for the social or moral lesson in the murder of five. We interpret what we see, select the most workable of the multiple choices. We live entirely, especially if we are writers, by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images.
0: Would you say that was an inspiration for your own writing?
1: You know, if you've read that essay, The White Album, there's a moment where she introduces her own um, uh, psychological report from that time into the narrative, and that that crossing of cultural, personal, and societal was thrilling to me. I thought that she was doing something brave, and and I think as a fiction writer, um, the personal for me is much more embedded. Pasquale Tursi in Beautiful Ruins is a man who's never left his hometown. I'm a guy who's lived in my hometown his whole life, um, so they're they're often much lower beneath the surface, but. Um, that, I feel like that taught me not just what a sentence should sound like and what a story should do, but what it should feel like to have written it.
0: And how about something you wrote? Can you read something that was either challenging to write or changed or something that you feel like you succeeded at?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, Beautiful Ruins, we were talking about it taking 15 years. And one of the reasons was the ending. I had several different endings that, um, I kept trying to find my way into and, uh, Eventually, as I said, the story became about these different forms of storytelling. And um, when I I went to Italy one last time to sort of find my way around it, and I had this idea all of a sudden that the last chapter would be a version of the entire book in which I recreated all of these stories in one big swirling present tense. And so the the novel itself would be recreated in some in this last chapter. And uh, the beginning of that I was always sort of fond of because it's, um, I like to riff sometimes as a writer, and it's a sort of extended riff. It begins, uh, it's chapter 21, Beautiful Ruins, and it begins with an epigraph by Milan Kundera. There would seem to be nothing more obvious, more tangible and palpable than the present moment, and yet it eludes us completely. All the sadness of life lies in that fact. This is a love story, Michael Dean says. But really, what isn't? Doesn't the detective love the mystery or the chase or the nosy female reporter who is even now being held against her wishes in an empty warehouse on the waterfront? Surely the serial murderer loves his victims and the spy loves his gadgets or his country or the exotic counter-spy. The ice trucker is torn between his love for ice and truck, and the competing chefs go crazy for scallops, and the pawn shop guys adore their junk. Just as the housewives live for catching glimpses of their own botoxed brows in gilded hall mirrors, and the rocked out dude on Royds totally wants to shred the ass of the tramp-tatted girl on hookbook, and because this is reality, they are all in love madly truly with the body might clipped to their back buckle and the producer casually suggesting just one more angle just one more jello shot and the robot loves his master alien loves his saucer superman loves lois lex and lana luke loves leia till he finds out she's his sister and the exorcist loves the demon even as he leaps out the window with it in full soulful embrace as leo loves kate and they both love the sinking ship and the shark god the shark loves to eat which is what the mafioso loves too eating and money and Polly and Omerta, the way the cowboy loves his horse, loves the corseted girl behind the piano bar, and sometimes loves the other cowboy, as the vampire loves night and neck and the zombie, don't even start with zombies, sentimental fools. Has anyone ever been more lovesick than a zombie, that pale, dull metaphor for love, all animal craving and lurching, outstretched arms, his very existence, a sonnet about how much he wants those brains. This, too, is a love story.
0: Was that like a burst or was that really challenging?
1: Yeah, it was. You know, it sort of introduced the tone of this next set of the last section of the book. It, um, there's a kind of narrator that appears there all of a sudden who's commenting on the culture. You know, um, there's a character, Michael Dean, um, who is a rea- reality TV producer who is in the middle of a meeting, um, and that epiphany is not his. That's uh, um, omniscience, you know, the big sort of overriding voice that tells you this is the world you're looking at is something that's sort of gone out of favor as a writer. and. Um, and there are, there are flashes of omniscience in the book, but this was when I really sort of committed to it. Um, it was as if I was telling you, um, I had this sense as a writer that I was gathering all those stories I'd told you before, and now um, I was imposing myself and telling you what the story was. As a writer, you have to feel like you give yourself permission to do things sometimes, especially if they're breaking out of the form of what fiction is doing at that time.
0: And where do you write?
1: I have an office above our garage. We live in a 105-year-old house overlooking the Spokane River. Um, There's a river canyon just below. Um, So I have windows that look out on Mount Spokane, which is our little ski mountain, and the river canyon. And the river canyon is a kind of uh, wildlife highway, so deer and moose and turkeys and all sorts of animals wander into our yard, and it's kind of a lovely spot.
0: And where do you go or what do you do to get away from writing?
1: I get up around 5.30 every morning and write, and then I take a break. Uh, and in that break, I do two things. I get some sort of exercise, whether it's just pull-ups and push-ups and, um, or basketball or riding a bike. And then I go have um, what the hobbits fondly call second breakfast, which is the most glorious meal. So around between 10 and 11.30, I'm usually exercising and um, having second breakfast.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: You know, the, uh, I used to show my wife everything first. She was a newspaper editor. She's a wonderful reader. And then I gave her a novel that I, uh, part of a novel that I was so nervous and proud of. And I went downstairs, and when I came back up, she was reading Bel Canto by Ann Patchett. And it broke my heart so completely that I've yet, no, I still show her first. But <laughs> I tease her that I would have rather caught her in bed with someone else than with another book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and how have you dealt with rejection?
1: You know, it's funny the when one of the great things about being an author is they start with your biography, you know, he's won this award, he's done that, he's published these books and I always think there should be another introduction they read that says um, he's been, been he's been rejected by the New Yorker 46 times and he has three novel, novels that he's completed that are still in his garage you know every writer if you meet a successful writer you can think you've met someone who's had a string of successes but what you've really met is someone who has so many rejections but they've managed to swim past them and get by them. I love to write. I love it the way I love to read. And I love the synthesis of story and the way it forms. And um, when I get rejected, I just go write something else and still happens all the time, you know, the um, uh, less often than it used to, thank goodness.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Oh, my favorite word. That's so tough because I have a kind of authorial Tourette's. I love swear words, and I don't swear in my normal life, so maybe that's why. But, um, and I love the collision of words that don't look, make sense together like asshat. I just think asshat's a wonderful thing to call someone. But uh, um, but if I'm not going um, sophomoric and childish, I would say redemption. I've always loved that word.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Jess Walter, author of the novel Beautiful Ruins. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.